Hello, I'm Alan Gregory Fox. And I'm Dawn Stobart. And we are Pennywise Dreadful. As usual, we'd like to give our customary content warning. So Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during the podcast, we will be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. And I know I do say this a lot, Alan, but I want to double <laughs> down on the content warning today and I want to give an explicit content warning for sexual trauma and child abuse because there is a um, section of the book that we're looking at today that I find particularly traumatic <clears throat> and I don't want anybody else to fall into the same trap unawares. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I do think that um, the... Um, the sequence to which you are referring um, is quite possibly one of the most graphic things that King has ever written. Yep. And, um, and anybody listening is welcome to contest that if they wish, but um, I, they're going to have to do something quite drastic to, to move the needle on that one. I think yeah. we're in, in sort of unified agreement. I as think to so. How graphic and... and Disturbing. Disturbing. Well, yeah. I was trying to think if there was another word for it. <laughs> no, there really isn't. I mean, we'll, we'll. I feel that we we need to discuss it as it's the linchpin of the entire narrative. I do, but I think maybe Alan would. I'd quite like to work up to it rather than jump straight. No, absolutely. But what I mean is that you can't approach the library policeman without with without it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's not worth sort of putting that uh, additional content warning, small specific content warning, um, out there up front um, so that people have the option to run away if they don't want to know the score look run away. away now run away um, I have to be honest and start by telling you this is my first read of the library policeman and I don't have a clue why because I've read every other book in four past midnight so I, unless that I've read it and completely blocked it out I mean is it possible? Well, I don't, possibly, as we might discuss later on. But yeah, so this feels to me like a fresh read. So, mm. Mm, which was quite I, I, unusual. I. It's weird. I think that a lot, as much as, I mean, there are first time reads within this reread that we're doing for me. But what I would say is that there are a lot of the rereads that because of the gap and my <laughs> maturity and which uh, from the standing point I am currently reading or rereading everything everything seems to have taken on um, a different sort of dimension in, in as part of the reading process so a lot of these feel like fresh reads but particularly this one I think as a teenage reader you don't get the gravity no. of what's being discussed that you get as a 30-something-year-old man or, yeah. you know, as an adult, uh, you know, of any uh, gender or creed or, you know. Um, and I think that lies at the heart of, of what makes this such a, a disturbing mm. text. Yeah, because but, I, 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 the, the, some of the bits with Ardelia were horrid, but they mm. weren't. Horrific, you know. So the the no. when when we get Dave describing what she looked like when she was feeding, for example, yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, that's fine. It's a Stephen King book, and a lot of the things that were happening, I was like, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, until we got to that. 
I mean, I almost felt reading that sequence that it was almost like Stephen King writing explicitly to Dear David Cronenberg, I recently read and watched The Fly yeah. and was, I really loved it and I want to show I want to show you how much I loved it by writing this humongous love letter in in one of my short stories and you know maybe I don't know. We'll I also get thought together and have a beer sometime well not a beer but uh, you know I also we'll wondered have... do you remember a film called Leprechaun back in the olden days of slasher no well it reminded me a little bit of that I'm sure it was called Leprechaun and it was about a leprechaun oddly enough as the title would suggest yeah and so I got a little bit you know when when Ardelia is in her original form in the mm. library towards the end but anyways Alan let's start at the very beginning should we this week just just for a change and talk about Dave, uh, not Dave, Sam. Sam in Sam the first. Peebles. Sam Peebles in the first place. As a writer, as somebody who writes quite a lot, both of us. Yes. Um, I felt very familiar with his. It, it was almost an imposter syndrome that he had at the beginning, wasn't it? I can't do this. Yeah. Um, I think as well. I mean, what I think that, that I I related to in in Sam's dilemma, his opening dilemma. There was there was something quite innocuous about it, but also you could see the the sort of snowballing in his head. Mm -hmm. In terms of, he could see a simple solution in front of him, but he had the sort of intellectual tools to do it better. Yeah, and so he, he felt a sort of compulsion, um, and I think a lot of, of of King's protagonists, whether they be writers or not, are sort of driven by the same sort of um, unwritten compulsion to um, maybe act against their best interests. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of the part of the what makes this one particularly good, and I th and I think this is one of the great novellas mm. in King's back catalogue. What makes it so great is is just how how innocuous the genesis of the yeah. of the uh, tension that drives the narrative is. Mm. So, you know, you're thinking, because, you know, you read his introduction about the sort of, the germ of of inspiration that drives, that inspired the story to take shape. You're thinking, Jesus Christ, all he's done is borrow a couple of library books. Right. And you think, what what could possibly be so bloody fearful about not being able to return a couple of library books? Pay the fine, say you're sorry and move on. And, I don't know, but, but there's, a, there's a fear there. I remember being a younger person going to the library yeah. and being terrified of having to pay that fine of because and I'm not into I was thinking about this because you're a kid so you yeah. know, the, the thoughts aren't the same as they would be now whereas now I would be ashamed because I'd borrowed something and not given it back on time you know those sorts of yeah. things breaking the rules they're not as important to you when they're little but I was terrified of having a book given back late yeah, it felt no, like a really I sort of big that, transgression. What I mean is, I wonder whether the, the key to the success of a story like this one is how successful King is at making you regress. Mm. Because as an adult, it's not as fearful as if you are a, a ten-year-old kid who was. It's it's kind of because you're sort of it's your first venture into responsibility. Yeah. Sort of, you know. We're gonna trust you to 
take this book away and then bring it back. So it's kind of your training is beginning mm. to to to, um, to take you into you know the uh, big bad world of adulthood. So you know you sort of as I say when you read the introduction, you're sort of going, "What's so fearful about that?" And then you go, "Oh." Wait, no, I remember this. Yeah. It's the, it taps into the sort of primeval yes. sense of, of fear of, oh, my God, but if I don't get it back, then... I'm such a bad person. Yeah. I think that's at the heart, isn't it? Yeah. You, it makes you feel innately bad. Yeah, yeah. It's so sort of melodramatic about it, but that's... And I think even without that scene, I think... That, that that feeling before I got to that scene, like I say, this is my first read of that that I mm. am aware of, mm. and so I was still feeling disturbed. I was still feeling all the feelings from when I was younger. Without that scene, yeah, which explains Sam's reasons. So yeah, sure. and, and it is it is absolutely that sense of responsibility being put on your shoulders. And it's not a big responsibility, but I guess when you're like 10, it's an enormous responsibility. I think when you're 10, it's the only responsibility you've ever been given of that magnitude. Yeah. So, you know, it's like when when you're 10, 50 years old, seems like, you know, you've lived to be 200. Yeah. Um, because you, you have no sense. It's uncharted territory. You have no sense of, of anything beyond being 10 or anything beyond having no responsibility whatsoever. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of this being your first sort of venture into... Because the thing is, as much as there are children's libraries as well, libraries are... And we'll go... I'll, I'll sort of talk about how they can be coded as safe spaces. I think they are also coded as adult spaces, predominantly. Yes. Yeah, the be um, quiet. People are working, people are reading... Don't make yeah. noise, no running round. Children's sections are in separate rooms, in separate sections, separate buildings sometimes. Yeah, so, but yeah. also the idea that you can't venture that far without the supervision of an adult to get you there. You yeah. can't do it independently. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a sense that it, there's a dual, duality to the library um, yeah. in the sense that it's a safe space because there are adults present, but also it is an adult space. Um, so you are sort of, there's an unwritten code that you, you need to act accordingly. Yeah. Um, I think there's also the... Put away childish things at the door. I think there's um, also the idea of it being an escapist place that this book refutes completely, this novella refutes, doesn't it? Mm. It's, you can go into the library and become whomever and whatever you want to be through the medium of writing. And that's taken away for Sam. Yes. Which, you know... To, and then taken away again. Which, to, for it's me, that. you know, as, a, as an adult, when I was a child, however, throughout my entire life, that has been the case for me. And if somebody had taken that away... That would have been monumentally tra traumatising is not the right word, but the library was such a big part of my life when I was a little girl that if somebody had taken that away from me, that would have severely impacted on every other aspect of my life. 
Yes. Does that make sense? And I think it does that yes. with Sam, doesn't it? Even though, even though he forgets the the events of his childhood, it's there all the time, isn't it? <clears throat> no, it suddenly struck me because um, I'm. It suddenly struck me that I'm sure our, our colleague um, and uh, previous uh, collaborator Jan Ashworth has written about the sort of library status as a, as a safe haven or as a the the sort of. <clears throat> The kind of em emotive responses generated by the library as a space. Library. Oh, not the emotive. You, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. I'm uh, looking. And her. Uh, <laughs> well, no, because her base it says about how she started out working in the BOD. Yes. See what I mean? I mean, if Jen is not comfortable with us talking about this, then we can move on. But, I don't uh, know, because she's got a um, programme that is on Radio 3 right now about the about Preston and how it, she takes a walk through Preston's Harris Museum, Gallery and Library. So, that's so yeah, radio well, I guess what I mean is like, so we have colleagues who have talked about the sort of significance, cultural and otherwise, of libraries. Mm. Um, and so it's interesting, you may drink, um, <laughs> that, that King touches, they are sort of like a touchstone of every, and I, and I wonder, because of the sort of relatively small scale of the American spaces that King creates, mm. The library becomes kind of central to a lot of them. I mean, I was just thinking before we started recording about what it represents to say Ben Hanscom in it. Mm-hmm. You know, he yeah. are, it's literally an escape from Henry Bowers and the the sort of spectre of bullying. Yeah. However, the, when we get to the, when we the second film, is it the second film or is it the first film? The recent incarnations of it. The library then becomes the site of nightmare for him, doesn't it? But yeah, but again, I think this sort of speaks to the duality of the of the library as a space. Yeah. And I think King, as, as a writer, I imagine that the library is a key space for King anyway. So the fact that he's able to manufacture a, a way for the library to to function on multiple levels mm. it, it, i find and and almost become counterintuitive to what people believe it to represent yeah yeah um, i think jen puts it really well um when she jen puts it really well when she says uh, for her herself it was a safe and happy place a good place to be alone to read whatever i wanted i was too young to know anything about book hype the canon or what books were suitable for a teenage girl of my mm. class and background so i read whatever i wanted and i think that's the dominant idea of what libraries do for children yes so do you think that's what king is playing with in relation to particularly when you've got Ardelia and, and the sort of the various posters that 
she puts up the sort of you know the artistic representations of fear that she puts up there is a sort of restriction particularly to um, what children can read that is normally taken away yeah in conventional library spaces mm. possibly yeah I think it's yes I think or it's... am I oversimplifying no no I don't think you are I think it's quite complex though isn't it when you get below the surface I think he is playing with expectations of what happens in a library expectations of how libraries work expectations of reactions you know about libraries as a safe space and there should be a safe space and assuming I, the Tories don't shut them all well there is that I'm just going to sorry heavily there this, this is a, a, a non-political podcast we have <laughs> it's no not though is it Alan no, it's, it's not not political at all. Hashtag Boris out. <laughs> hashtag fuck this government. Hashtag where has Boris gone? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Anyways. So I do think on the surface he's doing that, but I think he's doing something a lot more than that. I think he's almost asking us to reflect on our own experiences with libraries mm. and look beneath the surface of how they work that that kindly old lady who would help us find whatever book we wanted when we were nine or 13 yeah. or was she really a nice old lady or is that just what we're perceiving yeah because this is the thing because even the staff at a library i mean even if you go back as far as your sort of school libraries mm. and the sort of you know because it's because it's also in in that context also a learning space and, and so you have to sort of... There is an element of policing the volume in an environment like that. Yeah. There's, so there's a sort of... There is, a, again, not just in the space, but in terms of the the people populating the space, there is an element that various elements of, of the experience are policed yeah. by the individuals. So as much as they are there to... As a support mechanism, they're also there as an enforcement mechanism yeah. as well yes so and, and you know potentially i'm not saying that i know of any librarians who are evil because i don't know any librarians who are evil but potentially there might be a librarian out there who gets really pissed off because a kid's drawn in a book and got cross and told the kid off there's a reason i didn't do library science at uni <laughs> would you be your brother's fine <laughs> you, know, but, you know you know the library card has been revoked. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think King and I think looking forward from when this was written to now and the decline of libraries, mm. I think it's we can also think about what it's saying to us now from the past about the importance of libraries and you know what libraries should be doing and what they're not doing. So while we're talking about this story as policing, there's somebody in their policing libraries, there's still an availability of books in these libraries. And I know my local library, the book, the, the amount of books in it has probably gone down by about 50% and been replaced by computers. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, because of, particularly because of where I live. This is where you name drop living in that London. No, I don't want to. Um, I right next door. next door to Boris. Uh, at least I don't live in Boris land. I'm only half a street away, but whatever. No, I think there's a difference between 
the sort of the big metropolitan city libraries that I'm I have access to now, mm. and the ones that I grew up in or next to or in proximity to as a kid. I, I remember going back to one near home uh, Christmas a few years ago and think I'm looking around and going. I'm pretty sure I have more books in my personal yeah. library than this library has. And I totally understand why that is happening in the modern, in 21st century Britain. Don't get me wrong. It's not the yeah, library's yeah. fault. No. It's no. not the local council's fault. I absolutely get that and I absolutely support public libraries. But at the same time, I am very, very aware that they do not provide me what I need whatsoever anymore. Which is really, really sad. As an academic... I've, there's nothing that I could viably use in a public library anymore. No, absolutely. And I think that's really sad, but at the same time... So I it's important now. Sorry, yeah, it is. Saying. No, it's fine. It is important. At the same time, I see the same thing in some higher education institutions. Not the one I've recently been working in. But where I did my undergrad, the library was awful. They just didn't have the money to stock it. They didn't have the money to upkeep it. And while there were books, there, a lot of them were like 50, 60 years old. They, were, they weren't relevant to a researcher. I think it's, there becomes an interesting sort of tension between what libraries represent to an individual in terms of... They may not be fit for purpose for us because of the kind of things we as, you know, as PhD researchers need to access. And in terms of because because when you reach the sort of level of research that we were sort of right. uh, aiming towards or aspiring to, you know, you're, you're aiming to or aspiring to a level of specialism, which means that it's not financially viable for any library... Oh. Totally. Beyond, beyond, say that the you know the British Library, yeah, um, and institutions of, of that magnitude, the level of specialism we aspire to uh, means that it's not financially viable for them to stop that, that kind no, of thing. I, However, as a cultural space, they need funding and yeah. they do represent something that's necessary. I think sadly that's disappearing. I mean, even I went to do some local research a while ago and even the local research books were old and out of date and mm. it's more viable to go do a Google search than go to the library for local information that's got nothing to do with my research needs. So Yeah, I do wonder whether that's what King is driving at in terms of whether... You can argue that Sam Peebles' motivations for going to the library are inherently, or sorry, are inextricably bound to his need to communicate to the community more widely. Yeah. Okay. So it sort of, so it, it then overtly demonstrates the library's functionality to the, or importance to the wider community. Yeah, yeah, I don't see why not. Well, that's how I viewed it anyway. But I think I think he's I doing... Mean, as much as it's just a, a bunch of old men getting pissed. I think there's a uh, lot going on in this novella, though, Alan. You know, it's more than yeah. just discussions of libraries and their usefulness. We've got um, alcoholism going on. We've got business people in small town, small town cities. 
Mm. Um, we've got how people react to other people. We've got homelessness. There's a lot of political messages going along that are quite explicit underneath yes. the surface of the horribleness of what the library policeman means. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sort of cornerstones of King yeah. throughout, but I think this uh, locates it in a new topography almost entirely. Yeah. I mean, I know that I've sort of drawn a parallel with Ben Hanscombe seeking refuge in, in it, mm -hmm. um, but there's something different about, about sort of the, you know, uh, there's something different between, there's a difference between Pennywise sort of appearing in the library as a, as a uh, one stop in his, you know, multiplicitous uh, mm. journey around Derry. I don't even know if that makes sense. No, sense. it does. I know what you mean. You know, it's, it's one stop in, in uh, among several. Yeah. Whereas, whereas for the, for the library itself to become the epicenter of the horror. Yeah. Even if, you know, the the sort of big, you know, the the, I will make sense eventually. A lot of the action it, does not take place within the library confines, does it? No, indeed. But and it is centred on the, the big, library. The big, the, the big, sort of trauma at the heart of the narrative, even sort of occurs outside of the library yeah. perimeter, but it's all linked to the library yeah. as a space. Yeah. Whereas. He's really gone all out to make the library a horrible space. Yes. I think, in a way that it just gestures towards, as I say, as one of many potential sites of horror within the very rotten uh, landscape of Derry. It's like one of many yeah. sites. It's sort of, it's part of a wider corruption, whereas this is a very sort of... It's a very you know, centralised, localised, yeah, I uh, agree. I also think that one of the one of the things that's my favourite drafting sentence to open paragraphs. One of the things. Um, we have to start drinking when you say that. Yeah, that's a good plan. Um, there's a definite. <laughs> there's a definite something. Words are failing me again, as usual. Right, it the library in it. I've, I've had enough tongue twisters in this. The library in it is a very child centric viewpoint we look a lot of a lot of what we see in it it's looking at it from the point of view of the child isn't it yeah and that's a thinking we've discussed that before that king was writing these when his own children were small and he had that first-hand experience that he was using yeah to create that world not yes. that pennywise existed in that world in real life no but it's a completely different tone in this story because it's from an adult perspective apart from that scene yeah i mean <clears throat> i mean even when dave is retelling the story of ardelia's actions in the library it's mm. still from an adult's viewpoint we still we don't get a child's viewpoint of what was going on at all we just get adults constantly whereas with it we got the children's viewpoints and not adults does that make sense yeah, yeah. although i mean I wonder if, within the confines of the library, Sam Peebles is kind of stuck in an emotional stasis brought on by Ardelia, or, you know, 
the library sort of inspires a, a kind of re regression into a childlike fear. So, it, you know, it, it is from an adult viewpoint, yeah. but there is, a, there is definitely a regression. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I read a regression in, in science. Yeah, but it's still, we're still seeing that from an adult perspective, though, aren't we? So when he's yeah. dreaming the scene, we get told repeatedly that he's watching, what does he call him, White Walking Sam? He calls him oh. something like that, doesn't he? It's something like that, he calls him, and he's watching, it's a, he's a passive viewer of his own dream. So even that is being repeated back from an adult perspective, rather than, and in my dream I was ten. Yeah. And so I think there's a, there's a complete difference in the way we, we interpret that, and the way mm. we read that, and the way King writes that. I think. But do you think that, that that's what gives it its, it's poignancy? Yeah, I do. I think it helps us as adults regress back to that. I've, I think what happened, I, I've not had the experience some people's had outside a library. Thank God. However, it did give me that feeling of being a scared 10-year-old, which I think if you were a 10-year-old, you wouldn't get that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, just, uh, think, I think that was what I was gesturing towards earlier. I think... <laughs> As, as long as we get there. But without giving it any sort of, you know... Oh, I can't even speak right now. Um, Don't panic. I'm sure without I being able to articulate what it is that I meant, um, I think any traumatic event is only tra <laughs> experienced by a child. I don't think, particularly under a certain age, children don't get the, the magnitude of any trauma yeah. they suffer until retrospective yeah and there's a lack of understanding of what's happening isn't there which king yeah. really 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 manages to put across really well in that scene yes doesn't he but i don't yes. want to talk about that yet but we are gonna have to come from the special <laughs> i'd like to talk about um sam's writing of his speech in the first place the yeah, I'm sure that was what we were starting That's where we started, the well, act of... About an hour ago. <laughs> but, uh, the act no, I, I think the fact that a novella this short is as rich as this is testament to oh. the success that King has managed to, to uh, imbue in his... Or the success that King has had in, in imbuing such a, a graphic and horrendous level of visceral horror into yeah. such a short space. Oh. But I um, think, yeah... Um, yeah, so I, when I was listening, I listened to the audiobook of this while I was doing other things, which wasn't a mm. great plan, no. I have to say. But um, no, so, Take a break after a certain point. <laughs> yeah, the beginning of the book where he's writing the speech and he's, he's unsure that he can do it, you know, all of those feelings were things I recognised absolutely 100% in myself. As an academic, as somebody who speaks out loud to people occasionally that feeling of oh, I'm going to mess this up I need something else I need this I'm going to get somebody else to listen to it you know all of that recognized oh, yeah. absolutely that felt like a very universal thing and that drew me right in because of that recognition yeah no no but I'm I think... all right what I would what I would suggest is I mean we we recognise it as academics because we're used to the. We recognise the process. So, what is it about Sam's anxiety 
that draws in the non-writers who I think it's a, I think it's a fairly universal thing though isn't it or we just map it onto our experiences of academic yeah. angle. So I map it onto my experiences at, at giving lectures or sure. conference papers or Q&As or whatever, you know? Whereas, like, others will say, you know, you've given a presentation at work on a Wednesday morning right. at 9am in front of the board members and they're all half asleep or they've all been for lunchtime drinks and you're the first thing that... Right, or I have to stand up and do this somewhere else or it's my turn to speak at the local club that I'm a member of or whatever I think that the idea of having to come out of your comfort zone and present is fairly universal even down to job public, interviews the, the idea of public speaking I suppose is a fear in, in of itself yeah uh, and I think it's a fairly universal one mm. and I think that drew me into this I, I so, empathise with him very very quickly so is it therefore Alright, so what, rather, I have a question. All right. What is the significance of him refusing the easy way out? In terms of, you know, he could put, he could reduce the expectation by just sort of throwing together something, you know, it would be dry, but it would be fine. They're just going to get drunk afterwards, it would be fine. But he seems to, you know, he's, he's offered that option, but he sort of actively refuses to do it. Because as much as he sort of has that sort of imposter syndrome, he knows he's capable of pulling off something. I think there's better. that. He knows he can do better. But also this is a business function, isn't it? It's the Rotary Club. And it's about networking and business. And he's an insurance salesman. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's about, you know, if I do a good job here... I might get something out of it at the end. So it, it's a case of what you put in, you get out sort of a thing is the way I was thinking that that worked in the first place. Mm. You know, so I do a decent job. Fred, who sits at the back with his gin, he's going to be really impressed. And he might tell his yeah. friend. And then I might get an extra 50 bucks worth of business out of that, you know? Sure. But I, I wonder whether, I mean, certainly... The way I would read it is that I I would give kudos to King in that he seamlessly offers, you know, it's, it's like the what if mm. sort of, you know, alternate history narrative we've talked about at length in, in our own sort of research processes. You know, he's offered two potential avenues to pursue and, and one would result in him not having to venture across the threshold of the public library. Oh, there we go. I, um, think, I think we're invited by the time we get to the end and we look back across this narrative, I think we're invited to see Ardelia's influence all the way through. Yeah. So I think we're invited to see that Ardelia caused, in inverted commas, the accident of the um, acrobat, for example, which meant I that... Sam had to step in, which meant that he had to go to the library to get the books, which meant that Dave then took them to the recycling, which meant that Sam then met his own, re-met his own library policeman, you know? And yeah, it, was all to get, it was all to get Sam to be the next vessel for Ardelia. Sure. But again, I mean, even once he's crossed the threshold, I mean, yes, the fact that he's walked across the threshold of the you know there's there's a temporal shift that allows 
are Delia to be present when another point he crosses the threshold and she's nowhere to be seen because she's, you know... Dead. Or she's dead. Hibernating. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the possible... It sounds sort of good Samaritan kind of... This is not really... These are not really appropriate posters to be showing in a children's library kind of mm. attitude that that inspires Ardelia's hatred, but you're maybe suggesting that he was doomed from the moment he crosses the threshold. So is there a duality? Well, yeah, I think there is. And I, I think that maybe before he even crossed the threshold, I'm not sure yeah, how yeah. I get to that, but when, we talk, when Dave's talking about it at the end of the book... Yeah. And he says it was no accident that you ended up at the library with those two books and I took them. She wants me and she wants you. It was no accident that I ended up taking those books away, you know? So that's what led me to think that the whole thing... Sure, but do you know what I mean? If he hadn't said anything about the posters, she'd have no reason to hate him enough to, mm. to try and pursue him. So, Oh, it's very clever. It is very clever. I think this, I'll be honest with you, I think this is probably one of the cleverest stories that King, that, you know, I would, I would put, not as a favourite, because it really isn't a favourite of mine. It's not one I want to read again. No, I, I think um, favourite is not a term I would use. But I think if I was in a top ten of the best of King's fiction, this would be up there. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. In, if you're looking at it in terms of depth and the richness and the quality and, and and again, I mean, I'll I'll argue this to 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 you know to anyone who's who listens anytime we sort of touch on one of King's shorter narratives, I end up praising it to the high hills. That's, I mean, he's a, he's a writer that's sort of traditionally associated with novels of Grant in a that have been written on a grand scale, yeah. you know, it and the stand. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that they aren't very good. But what I'm saying is I don't think he gets credited for the depth and richness he's able to cram into such a small yeah. space. And I think that, you know, he deserves more credit for yeah. his, for the quality of his shorter stuff. Yeah, I agree completely. I and really I think some do. of his longer um, fiction suffers... In the sort of inconsistent quality of of the weave. <laughs> yes. Um, what did you think about his depictions of alcoholism in this story, Alan? Not that I'm accusing you of being an alcoholic, but we've read several King books that feature. We don't alcoholism. know what's in this cup. <laughs> we have read several King novels and stories that feature alcoholism, alcoholics, the ramifications yeah. of that. Yes. And I think he approaches this quite sensitively. Uh, yes. I think... You know, not in a Jack Torrance sort of a way. No. I think that... And the reason I think it comes across as sensitive is that the alcoholism isn't central to the narrative. It's almost... Well, all right. What I mean is, like... For it to be more central to the narrative, I believe that he would have had to have made Sam Peebles uh, an alcoholic. I don't know, because I don't see Sam Peebles as a, as the central character. I see Dave Ooh. Mm. as more central 
than Sam. I think Sam's a no. conduit. No, no, well. <laughs> and Dave well. is the instigator? Well, it... Not the right hmm. word, maybe. Well, I well, see Dave as being that what everything revolves around. And Sam's yeah. part of that revolvingness. I mean... <laughs> I mean, could you argue if, as if Sam is Dave's double, maybe, so they occupy a, a, I think so, yeah. a mirrored space? Yeah, I think so. But all I'm suggesting is that because you need that Sam's confrontation with the library policeman to make things... To give... We can, we can only... He can only... Sam can only fix things by remembering that confrontation. Yeah, and and that is what makes me think that he is more central to the narrative than Dave is, but... Oh. <laughs> um, I think this is one of the joys of King's writing. I think this is King at his peak, isn't it? I... I, I mm, yes. This, this particular story... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would yeah. say is one of King's peak pieces of writing. I mean, talking to you right now, I think, I think, I remember talking to you about Secret Window, Secret Garden, mm -hmm. and saying that it was the best one he'd ever written. I am, as we speak, revising my opinion, <laughs> but it, it, I think that, and this is one of the things that I'm finding so good. Also, I'm just. This is the thing I'm really enjoying about this reread process is to to talk in such depth with a fellow King enthusiast. Very often we'll come to the table with completely different, yeah. well, both very valid opinions, I think. I, I think mean, that's one of the joys of doing this. People will disagree with us at, to varying degrees, depending on what text it is and, and what stance we take. But the number of times we've come to the table with different opinions on how the text functions. And, mm. But this is the first time where I've gone, oh, hang on, I hadn't seen that, and I haven't seen that. And it's not just the, you know, the, the mind-blowing thing at the core, at the core of the, uh, the core of the text that, that's made this such a special one to, uh, to read again, I think. You know, from start to finish, this is such a well-crafted mm. novella. Absolutely. Again, there's there's not an ounce of fat on it, but for this, that every, the, you know, the horror functions throughout, and it's like, well, now I'm going to shift the horror, yeah. but it's still going to work, yeah. and you're still going to be horrified. Yeah. You think, it's one of those like, right, I've seized it. Oh shit, it's moved. Yeah, and it's over here now, and it's you know. Yeah, and I think but, I've, I've but said. But you've still got a remnant of the horror over there, so it's kind of like it's it, it feels like a spider's web of horror. Yes. In a way that some of his other, um, some of his other stuff. I mean, I think is a little bit. I'm loath to say it's given you know the the um, esteem in which we hold. Uh, Mr. King, um, but um, in comparative to something as as rich and diverse as this is, some of the um, horror he represents can seem a little bit mm, one-dimensional. Yes, or yeah, no, it's not as multifaceted. There is one source of horror to, for you to confront, yes, and once you're beyond it, that's it. Yeah, 
no, I agree. I think this is... Whereas here, every corner you look in, there's a new one. Yes. And I think he's doing that mixing... He does supernatural horror really well, as we've discussed. Yes. But I think his strength lies in that, as Heidi Strangle says, monsters live in ordinary people. And I think that he really excels in writing horror that is not supernatural. So The Long Walk, you know, those sorts of narratives that yeah. that it could be you or me. And I think... I really hope The Long Walk isn't me. No. I'd be shot within ten minutes. Yeah. But, you know, you won't be. I won't, I won't let them. We'll just... <laughs> anyway, you'd be all right. You could just get your wheels. <laughs> think that's cheating. No, be all right. Anyways, um, yeah, so I think a lot of his strengths come in acknowledging the horror and writing about the horror that is not supernatural, that exists in the world, which brings us oh. to that scene. Sadly. For, this benefit, for the benefit of the audio, my face has crinkled into a disgusted, horrifying. Yeah, um, I, I did toy with it, the uh, the notion of um, of buying a pack of strawberry shoelaces. <laughs> um, so I decided against it because the the very notion of that purchase made me feel sick. Yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna for the for the benefit of our listener. Um, so we're going to be talking now about sexual abuse and child abuse. Yes. The, um, there's a very the, the scene in the novel is very, very, very graphic and horrible. So if you don't want to listen to this, I'd advise skipping forward ten minutes. Um, I wouldn't put a time limit on it, mate. I've no <laughs> idea how long we'll be talking about this. But ten minutes is a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so the scene, Alan, the scene. Where Sam the, meets the scene. His, the scene where Sam um, is dreaming and remembers meeting his own library policeman. Yeah. And he's taken, he's, he's got a late book, it's a Robert Louis Stevenson book. And he's off to the library and he's got his strobbly laces. Does, does he mention which one it is? There, he does. Must be a significance. No, he, the... he does, he does, and I can't remember. I can't remember. Is it black something or dark something? Or oh, it's the, um, the Black Arrow. Yes, that's the job. Right, so he's got a copy of the Black Arrow, which needs to be back at the library in his four days overdue. And he's got the money for the fine, and he goes to the shop and buys some strawberry laces. Yeah. And then there's somebody waiting outside the library, and it's a man with a long trench coat and black rimmed glasses that blind he, he acknowledge he says explicitly like the sort blind people would wear and the man under the guise of saying he's a library policeman takes him around the back of the library into some undergrowth that has been pre-made into a den and anally rapes him yeah and the scene is very graphic and it is very descriptive and i found that incredibly traumatizing to listen to on my audiobook um, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna even suggest that it's not traumatizing. It's. I think. The, go on. Go on. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I read it this again several weeks ago, and I don't think there's been a, a day where I haven't, particularly in the current context, where I haven't had sort of, you know. Uh, 
my regular day to sort of distract me from the kind of things I'm, I'm reading at the moment. Um, there hasn't been a day where I haven't sort of sort of sat back and um, tra- re-traumatised myself with memories of yeah. what I read several weeks ago every yeah. day. I think at there's... At least ten minutes. I think there's a couple of things that my reaction told me. That that is a very well-written piece of prose. Yeah. He describes that absolutely as if it's from a ten-year-old boy. So you yeah. don't get the adultness of such an event. Do you know what I mean? Even though he's... Yeah. The, the dream is Sam watching himself, little white walking Sam. Yeah. We have the child's reaction. So he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what is being inserted into his anus. He doesn't no. He doesn't understand any of that. And I think King puts that across really, really well. I also wonder how on earth King knows what that's like. Does that mean... <laughs> I know that sounds really awful. To, to, to write something like that in that detail, mm. I struggle to see how he... Yeah, like you say, I'm... I, I, I dread, I would dread to ask the question where that knowledge comes from mm. or where, what his source is for that mm. information. Because that comes across not as first-hand knowledge, but as knowledge yes. rather than guesswork. And while yeah, that yeah. might just no, be no, the way he's crafted it... If you, if you decide to write something like that, you can't guess. I know. Looking from my own perspective, Alan, um, I probably mentioned this to you, but I was sexually abused when I was a child, and that brought back a lot of recollections that felt very similar. So the way my mind remembered that felt very similar to the way King wrote that, is what I mean. So how did he manage to write that without any first-hand knowledge? Do you know? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But I think despite the fact it's incredibly disturbing, incredibly traumatising, and not something I ever want to read again, I think it is a skilful, articulate, amazing passage. I, I can't disagree. <laughs> I, um, I can't. I think it's utterly horrifying. Mm, it but is. I think, I think far too often, particularly, you know, when you're, when we're traversing... A body of work that is is, is as long um, as kings, and and we're constantly talking about, you know, King is I think the world's most recognised horror author. Mm-hmm. Um, so horror is is a is a term that we it's a, a sort of like an occupational hazard when you take on a. Um, a task like this one where you say, right, we're going to go through the entire lot. You, you band the term horror around, yeah. like, you know, it's like a tennis match. We're doing this back and forth with it. I've never meant it as, as no. you know, as as acutely as I mean it right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, that passage has to be one of the most horrific passages I have ever read. Never mind in a Stephen King novel, just read. Yeah. And I think part of it is its believability. It's not even the explicitness. It's the absolute 100% believability that that's 10-year-old boy and that's the way that 10-year-old boy has experienced that. Yeah. Is it also, I mean, and I think this is why 
the strawberry shoelaces are so chilling. There's a sort of there's a sensory depth to mm. it that is missing from a lot of horror narratives more widely. Yeah, you know, they, you concentrate on the sort of visceral the blood, not the smell of, of the blood. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not yeah, not the wider sensory elements that that make up. Yeah. You know, if they're miss well, only one of those has to be missing for, for the for the for the impact to to lessen yeah. you know for, for it to lose some of its um impact and, and I think that's what makes this yeah. all, so all five and I say successful, but I think that's what I'm you know, I mean. Yeah, it is successful even as it's horrific. I think you're right. I think this that passage has all five senses, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think that this is why the strawberry shoelaces are included. Yeah, it gives uh, us that scent. It gives us a sense of taste. Yeah. So we've got a sense cool. of smell. We've definitely got the sense of hearing what he's saying. Yeah. That the like policeman with saying. the lisp as well, and yeah, and then we've got him seeing the guy in the library, mm. and then we've got all the sensations that Sam's feeling. You know. But it means that as an adult as well the the threat mm. of the library policeman is enough yeah you never actually he doesn't reappear if i remember rightly he does at the end in the library but it's it's all ardelia isn't it yeah so, no isn't it it's him at the beginning it's him and he is ardelia i think and it, i yeah. think ardelia's got him out of sam's head right right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it's the library so, policeman that kisses Sarah Naomi's neck and plants uh -huh. Ardelia in there. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then Sorry, he just... Then, not quite. Yeah. But you know what I mean? It's the, the threat is enough. He doesn't yeah. have to appear. It's the... You remember. Yeah. He could come back at yeah. any point and that's enough. And, and I think... That's I think there's a... Um, this was... The 80s, early 90s was a time where lots of traumas, child abuse traumas particularly, was being, was being, whether it was real or not, resurfacing, wasn't it? There was quite a lot of news about people who suddenly remembered that they'd been sexually abused from nothing. And people were saying, well, how is that, how is that possible that you can just forget it? And I think this speaks to that a little bit as well that Sam was able to completely get rid of that traumatic experience from his memory, apart from the connection with the strawberry laces. Yeah. So once again, we've got King doing what King, I think, does best. He's talking about what's going on in the world. Yeah, but I think he's done it particularly poor. Um, I mean, there's talking about the things that go on in the world, and then there's this. But this is one of those taboo hidden things that... I'm not speaking particularly personally, although it's there, but looking at the world around me and research the way I have over several years now, that that child abuse, especially child sexual abuse, has been something that's gone on in the background of most people's lives to some description. Or you know somebody who it's happened to even though you didn't know, if you know what I mean. So while yeah, no, while nobody said nobody said anything in the past, it was a fairly 
usual is not a word I want to use, but it wasn't as uncommon as we might think. Does that make sense? But it's oh. been taboo and untalked about, and it's just, you know, you know, you can Google and see hundreds upon hundreds of people who say, I told my mum and she didn't believe me, or I told my grandma and she didn't believe me, or I got told nobody would believe me. You know, all of that. And so it became taboo and something to not be talked about. And King's shining a light on that, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um... And I think potentially that's one of the things that makes it so... <sighs> What's the word I'm looking for? Not traumatic, but... Outing? Possibly, yeah. You know, that it's shining a light on something that you know, especially now when we, we're in the post-Jimmy Savile Britain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. And we had, in America, Corey Feldman said years and years ago that these these things were happening in Hollywood, didn't he? Yeah. And it was brushed under the carpet. And he, he said, Corey Feldman said on a, a TV interview show that this was going on in the world and he got told to shut up because it would ruin Hollywood and careers. And I think King's shining a light on this. Um, and I think because King will have been sort of familiar at this, at this stage of his career, he would have been familiar with the mechanics of Hollywood and the, and the film industry mm. to a point where he thinks that he has a platform to... To continue to, to, to shine a light in the dark corners, yeah. which is one of the things he does throughout his career. But I think this is a new dark corner yeah. that nobody's dared shine a light on before. Right. And he got, he got not ridiculed, but he was slammed quite a lot for the scene in It, wasn't he? He was. And so he's he's shone a different light on this and said, well, you know, you, you've, you've slagged me off for that, but look what is actually going on. And I think that's what he's doing with that scene. And I think part of its shockingness is it is literally shocking. It is articulating something going on that most people would rather not hear about. Well, yeah, I, th I think that's the thing, isn't it? I, th I think at, at its heart, this is confronting something that the adult world would rather keep secret. Yeah. And that children... I mean, that the it's end of... Work. Thing. Yes, well, definitely. And I think children... Not speaking for me when I say that. No. But I think children especially would... Um, yeah, the end of the scene, that scene where Sam's ashamed and he won't say anything. He's just going to make sure he forgets it. And I think that's that's almost inbred in us. Us as human beings, not me. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think that you get the sense... And it, and it's something he touches on in it, but again, makes more over in in a narrative like this one. It's almost like place specific. So if you move away, you forget. Yeah. You know, I think that's what you know. That's because all of the losers club forget. Yeah. The memory is entirely. They're entirely reliant on the memories of Mike Hanlon to bring them back. Yeah. Um. And I think something similar is happening here, but again, it's got more potency. I think. Yes, I think this is this could be, yeah, especially in the, say the post Weinstein, post Savile, post Cosby, post Spacey, yeah. post which post, has shown post, post. how widespread child sexual abuse is. 
shocking, isn't it? It is shocking, it really, really I, I is. Mean, I mean, I'm sorry, every time I say something like that, I'm thinking, I'm being, it sounds like I'm being really dismissive. No. When I, oh, it's shocking, isn't it? But it is oh. shocking. It's shocking how commonplace it seems to have been in the past. And how, you know, if King's saying this, when was this, when was this released? Mid-80s? This, 1990. Oh, well, 1990. So we're definitely it, talking around... 1990, that's all. Definitely talking around the time Corey Hayman and Corey Feldman were both being bandied around, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And no, you know, he he was he knew Corey Feldman after working on the Stand by Me several years earlier. Yeah. So he's aware of of the world, and he'll have been aware of Corey Feldman saying these things because I think most people were because it ruined Corey Feldman's career. Yeah. Yeah. So I personally think what he's doing is he is shining a light on a really, really taboo, shocking aspect of, of being human. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would add to this, and, and I think that as you pointed out and sort of situating this within the wider context of a sort of post-Savile society, you, you read something like Mark Edmondson's Nightmare on Main Street, and he situates it within a, the specifically American context. Mm -hmm. But this is not an American-specific phenomenon. No. It goes well beyond that. Yeah, and I think one of the problems with Edmondson's, um, Edmondson's interpretation of King, that King loves kids, which, yeah, fair enough, he does. Um, the Edmondson says, Rice features a displaced paedophilia, rapturous blood sucking between kids and grown-ups rather than straight-up sex, as one of the attractions of interview with a vampire. And I think King's doing exactly the opposite, isn't he? And he doesn't acknowledge that, particularly in Nightmare on Main Street. No, I, I you know, think... In, in this particular narrative, I don't mean in general. Sure. Um, I think that... I think there's a definitely... You know, there's not a rapturous blood sucking between kids and grown-ups. I think there's a deep abuse between grown-ups and kids. Well, I, I, I mean, in, in this narrative, the, there is that sort of, sort of ritualistic, coded yeah. blood sucking um, yeah. action going on. But it's the, the fact that it's, it's framed through the tears of small children is, yeah. oh, oh... It's creepy. I think um, one of the other things before we, we go off on this, because I think we've just about, uh, I've just about had enough of discussing this. Sure. Alright. No, but we've gone on for more than 10 minutes, which is why I'm wondering whether you retrospectively might want to indicate to us. If you're still here, we'll be, another, we'll be another couple of minutes yet. Um, right at the very end of this scene where the library policeman um, is tidying yes. himself up, trying to be nice about this so it doesn't traumatise It's impossible to be nice about too, it. Less yeah, I don't want to traumatise our listener too much. But um, the thing that inspires the shame in Sam is being told he liked it. You liked it, didn't you? That's what the guy with the lisp says. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things, again, with one of the things, that's one of the things that rape victims say that abusers, rapists say to justify themselves you liked it didn't you <sighs> and i think that adds a realism that many 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 people even people who haven't haven't 
experienced child abuse, but maybe have experienced a sexual abuse of some other form, would recognise that that the, the ability that that one sentence has to bring about shame. Because it yeah. makes it, that that sentence almost makes the victim culpable. It doesn't in reality. Yeah, you the uh, you get the impression that the the motivation of the abuser is to implicate the abused party yeah. into their action. You wanted it, or in the, yeah, or you know uh, you want it, or you know. Yeah. Well, I think as well, they're aware, particularly, you know, when you're talking about young children, you are aware that they have no frame of reference for that, for that traumatic experience. And therefore, they can't compute it or they can't process it coherently enough. To immediately refute, no, I, no, I didn't. Yeah, and it takes some. I think on a, you know, on a... No, I I think you've got something here, Alan, because it's not until Sam's an adult and confronts the library policeman to say he didn't like it. But it's one of... Because I think on a a sort of base, primordial level, the Mm. child knows they don't, Mm. but they they have no way of... ..of processing it in a way that they can then turn around and say, no, hang on, no, I didn't. Yeah, and it takes... They've got no reference for it. It literally takes till Sam is an adult for Sam to be able to process, articulate and then refute that, Mm. doesn't it? He says in the library at the end to the library policeman, no, I didn't. Mm. So I think King's addressing that. Yeah. Hmm. So there we go. So, So is there... So my question to you would be, is there any significance, therefore to the location of the final confrontation, given that the traumatic event at the core of this narrative takes place outside the library, the fact that the final confrontation is brought in. Yes, I do, I think so. It might take me a while to articulate why, but I do think so. I think the event, I'm going to use that one with a capital The the event. The event. Sam is looking into the library. He is an outsider looking into the library. The library is still at that point in time, even though he never goes back to another library, that library still represents a safe space that Sam is not part of while he's being raped. Sure. And I think that he reclaims that space at the end Mm. by the events taking place in the library and by using the strawberry laces as the weapon by which to destroy the library policeman and Ardelia. Yeah. So weaponising the, the, the tools that had previously been used to code him as victim. Yes. To reclaim his... Um, or to undo that. Yeah. To, um, to, to acknowledge to himself that he was not to blame, number one. Yeah. And that he didn't have to hide that. And he could heal from that. Because one of the things I understand from my own abuse as a child and the subsequent therapy I have received is that we internalise that. We might repress it, but it's still there, bubbling somewhere under the surface. And if Sam had been a real person, it would have affected him for for his whole life until he dealt with that. 
and in a very simplistic way that's what he's doing in the library at the end he's dealing with that trauma of being a 10 year old who was anally raped by a stranger yeah. so in an interest given that we're talking about library by the way the word, I, word i'd like to use is bookending <laughs> um, book end, the, the way the and i think this is another part of the narrative structure that is very carefully and meticulously and deliberately constructed by King in the sense that we, we talked at the beginning about how um, Sam's motivations for doing the speech at the, the Rotary Club is, is you know, um, being able to promote his professional uh, services within the local community. We always feel that that's because he isn't part of the local community. Yeah. Um, and like you say, if he's able to reclaim the library as a space, it's that reclamation that allows him to finally become part of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, a relationship that's sort of represented in his relationship with Sarah and, you know, the way that uh, Dave's alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous buddies... Um, all sort of take him in. Yeah. Um, and he becomes part of their social circle. So from sort of trying his best to sort of break the glass ceiling into the, a new community at the beginning, he finally manages it at the end. But it takes the penetration of the library space to facilitate that. No, I think, I think you're right. I think it does. But I think not only is he trying to... Not only does this allow him to become part of a new community, it allows him to become part of a community at all. Ah, so you're sort of seeing him as a kind of... An outsider. Flanneric loner. Yeah, yeah, an outsider. He doesn't fit in anywhere. You know, Mm. I think we're invited to see how he doesn't quite fit in to his normal normal not being the right word he doesn't have any friends he's alone all you know he lives by himself he's not married he's got a cleaner he's got dirty dave who comes and picks up his books for recycling he's got naomi who comes in once a week to do his filing or typing or whatever she does but apart from that he doesn't seem to have a circle of friends he says at the beginning you have two friends but they both moved away so he struck me as a loner all the way through yeah. And it's not until the end that he is able to become part of a community. And whilst with the best will in the world, <laughs> that it's it's a community that's a traumatised community for a variety of reasons, isn't it? Yeah. They're all joined together by alcoholism. And for mm. whatever reasons that alcoholism may be a thing, that's still some sort of trauma that, I don't want to say broken because I don't see that alcoholics are inherently broken. No. But I think there's definitely a outsiderness to them. And so he becomes part of oh. a community of people who will understand his trauma a little bit better. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Because there is a sense that... Because he, he tries to create... Uh, or cultivate relationships with the local community throughout. Yeah. There's, there's even a sense that he's tried to cultivate a, a romantic relationship with Naomi. Yeah. Um, but his lack of understanding of who she is is what precludes that relationship from happening. So it's only until... It's not until they've both sort of confronted their 
demons and they have a, a mutual understanding of of who they are yeah. as people. Um, that that is allowed to happen. Um, you know, Naomi's just Naomi's traumatized for her own reasons as well, isn't she? You know, Naomi, Sarah. Mm. That did confuse me a little bit, I have to say. Naomi, Naomi, Sarah, which would, what, what? Yeah. The name um, seemed almost interchangeable for a while. Uh, yeah, but not in a way that's sort of um, Detta Walker, Odetta no. Home. No, but it did seem like Naomi was Naomi and Sarah was Sarah, and it was Sarah who was the person who had to deal with alcoholism, not Naomi. Yes. I think by the time we got to the end of this story, I... Naomi was just some random person who used to do his filing. Oh, yeah, I think there was a sense that once... Once you get below the surface of her character, she's not Naomi anymore. No, no, you, you did get the sense that, that, that Naomi was just a mask that Sarah yeah. wore. Yeah. Um, within a professional sphere. Yeah. In order to, to function. Um, hmm. so, sort of in an educating Rita way. Um, yeah. What did you think of Dave, Alan? Um, I think Dave is possibly the most empathetic um, alcohol alcoholic that uh, Stephen King has written in his entire bibliography. Yeah. Um, because because did is it because you saw his entire downfall? I th I think so. Um, but also in the sense that, so a lot, I get the sense, I mean, I could be wrong, and if people want to pick me up for this, then they can, and you might be able to point out exceptions to the to the claim I'm about to make. But what I would suggest is that most of King's alcoholics are fallible, and their alcoholism is an inherent part of who they are. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, Just you know, quickly that thinking. That there, there is a sort of, that there's a sort of, King tries to sort of dig into the, the psychological component of addiction. Yeah. You know, and all that sort of thing. Whereas with Dave, I think what I think Dave is actually the word I would use for Dave is the most tragic alcoholic figure we've got in King's bibliography, in the sense that without the sort of incidental meeting with Ardelia, Dave doesn't become an alcoholic. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't inherently depend on alcohol to function. Yeah, she creates way, that, doesn't she? She creates an alcoholic. Yeah. And you can sort of understand why. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a sense that some of King's alcoholics use alcohol to drown out traumatic events in a way that Dave does, but you get the sense that that's, that just exacerbates an existing condition with yeah. a lot of the others. So, like in Tommyknockers? Yes. Yeah, Garden, Jim, Gardner. Tommy Jim Gardner is an alcoholic. And he's drinking he is drinking while at um, Bobby's house to to suppress the trauma that is taking place, isn't he? Yes. But he's or it's a pre existing yeah. condition. With Dave it's not. You mm. kinda get the sense that if he hadn't met Ardelia, he would be perfectly fine and he'd have you know, he'd be an artist ex exhibiting at the Tate down you know next month or whatever. Yeah, because he says um, he was getting there, he was selling paintings, wasn't he? Yeah, and so I think that's what makes his narrative so tragic. And and I kind of 
like that. Mm. Likes, yeah, people. likes not the right word. I don't well, think, but. no, but I mean, as a figure. I empathise with Dave on a level that... I mean, I, I think we are invited to empathise with most of, if not all, of King's alcoholics. Yeah. But, but Dave more, more than any other. I, I agree. Um, and I think part of it for me is seeing every step of his downfall and how mm, powerless he was. Yes. But also there's the sort of... For me, it's the also the sort of you almost get his final moment of clarity. Mm. He knows it's inevitable that he's going to lose the battle he's about to fight. Yeah, but he needs to do it. Yeah, and so it's the you know it's it's kind of like the you see the equivalent of when when the boiler's about to blow up with the overlook. Yeah, and, and Jack says to Danny, you know, he the false face has has been confronted by Danny, and all of a sudden. Jack reappears, tells Danny to run, and that's mm. the last moment of clarity you get. It's more, it's extended for this narrative, and I think it's more powerful because of it. Mm -hmm. um, but also, there is a sense that Dave is, has got to be the sacrificial lamb, and mm. he knows it. I think there's a sort of, there's an, an inevitability to, to Dave's status that makes him the tragic figure that he is, and, and it's alcohol at the, at the core of that I think one of the most touching moments I know we've talked about absolutely horrific moments one of the most touching moments in this is at Dave's funeral where mm. Sam tells Dave's two best friends that he was sober at the end yeah so this is the thing it's, it is a kind of it's interesting oh, drink <laughs> uh, perhaps given that we're talking about alcohol is it? Don't, don't drink but I'm, I'm struggling to kind of articulate what I mean here, but how can I think that the the greatest plaudit I can give King is I'm increasingly like impressed by how he is able to sustain a narrative that that you know snatches victory from tragedy, mm. You know, and allows them to coexist simultaneously mm -hmm. within a figure that is, you know, at at the you know you know David's a tragic figure. Yes. But you know the fact that he, King is able to then say, but he was still sober, and therefore it's a win. Yeah. But he's dead. You know, it's like I think there are a few few authors who have have written like coders to suggest that dead people have won because they, this happened this happened you know, but they're dead mm. so it can't have been such a, a big victory but this is one of the few times where you're like oh yeah I don't know I, I, I struggle well, there are there are so few circumstances in which I've read books or novellas or whatever where victory and, and tragedy have coexisted so successfully as this one before we go alan let's yes. talk about the ending and i don't mean the ending in the library i mean no. the ending mm. where sarah has been infected with the parasite that is our delia and the fact that's covid 19 yeah and how he again uses the red laces mm. to remove the parasite and then squishes it under a railway line 
I wasn't expecting a happy ending like that. I knew that that's what, you know, from the, from the bit in the library, I knew that's what had happened. I'd figured that. Yeah. But I was expecting a Richard Bachman ending, I'll be honest. I Given was expecting the ending to be more Sort of. I mean, and particularly because, I mean, as we've talked about in, in several instances uh, in this podcast, um, King's propensity to include cycles mm. would make that plausible way of concluding the narrative and sort of, you know, the sort of, you know, and Sarah looked off into camera and a smirk appeared. Right, and, or, um, yeah, just something, just something. She looked terrible, and that's when he realised. But not that uh, he was going to take the parasite out and squish it under a tree. <laughs> no, but I wonder whether... Do you think the story needed whether, this? Whether, I, whether, I think, because you know, in terms of the, you know, of, you know, I think the magnitude of Dave's victory only becomes clear if, if or is only sustained if Sarah is allowed to live mm. Ardelia free yes but I, I I think the way I thought it was going it felt very Bachman-esque yes and so I was expecting a Bachman ending you know where there isn't a happy ending there is you know Sarah is going to go off and become a librarian somewhere else sure I, I wonder whether there's a sort of there's a recognition by King that Sarah is still, you know, Sarah's battle with with alcoholism is not finished. Yeah. So that battle on its own will be enough. But she says that, doesn't she, quite repeatedly. An alcoholic's never not an alcoholic. You don't decide to stop drinking. Yeah. She's quite open about the fact she's always going to be an alcoholic. I think most recovering alcoholics are aware that you know, it's it's an ongoing battle. It's yeah. never concluded. You're only sort of one day away from falling off the wagon again. So, and that's something um, King knows about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Um, We've said this before about King and his uh, propensity to write what he knows. That's something mm. King knows very, very well. So I, I wonder whether that is what he's acknowledging in allowing Sarah the space and and the opportunity to slay at least one of her demons and, and sam too you know i think the fact they're both them is they can both slay one of the demons and that they they are now part of a, a wider support network to uh, for, to allow sam to support sarah in her continuing battle against help do you think it needed the happy ending then as i say i think um do you think it would have worked it, if it had been a backman ending i I would have been satisfied by a Bachman ending, although I, th I think it's um, Dave's Dave's sacrifice is rendered worthless if if you have a Bachman ending. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. Um, I'd have been sacrificed by, uh, sorry, I'd have been sacrificed by. I'd have been satisfied by either. But I'm sort think... of, in hindsight, pleased. I don't think you would have got the closure. No. I think we're invited to read the event as being the same parasite, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, I think that in order to achieve closure, that had to be that Sam had to get rid of it. That that loop had to be closed. Yeah, they had to be able to overcome that trauma, and I think that's that's important to the novel. 
personally so I think it wouldn't have been as satisfying is not the word because I don't think it's a satisfying ending I think it just ends but I think that if it hadn't ended like that we would have still been I would have still been waiting for the next novel where the library policeman comes back oh please no no I paid my fines but I think that's yeah yeah. So I'm a bit I'm a bit torn about that because I don't think it's a brilliant ending. No. They're using a sweetie in a train to kill off something that's spent decades upon decades we we, we don't know how long terrorizing. But, but again, I think it it's 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 using the tools of childhood to resolve a long-standing trauma. Yeah. So it's not. It's not about. I think. It's not about reading the ending as kind of like a coda. In isolation, I think into it makes sense in terms of the narrative as a whole. Yeah. And I, and as I say, allowing it, it provides Sam with the keys to to access the the wider community that he's been trying to access all along mm -hmm. it gives uh, some redemption not sam dave dave redemption doesn't it yes. dave is able to go to his death redeemed having made right that he only half made right in the first place yes he managed to ring the, sh the deputy to tell the deputy to protect his daughter and then passed out for two days so he didn't finish the cycle then whereas he's instrumental in finishing the cycle in the second and final yeah. episode so to speak isn't he yes so hmm. Hmm. I, I, I kind of understand what you mean <laughs> um, good I'm glad you understand what I mean well what I mean is it, it is a little bit of a it, it seems because of the, the scale of the final confrontation, um, the sort of the res the final resolution seems a little bit twee, mm. a bit, but I think, a bit anticlimactic. But I'm wondering whether you have to. It's almost like I can imagine it being like, and the reason I think that the train is used, it's almost like that. There's a harking back to a child's train set. So and you know, so you have the tools of childhood used as the final destruction. So there is a sort of cyclical thing yeah. to it that closes. I don't know parts of it. Yeah, I think that I we've been what, talking for a very long time about this. I think it's worthy of it, though. Mm. But I'm going to um, suggest, Alan, that we close for today. No, I think that's fair. If that's enough. all right. I think we've both been traumatized. Our poor listener is probably white-haired. Sorry, listener. Well, they can have the white hairs that I shaved off. Yeah. And I'm just going grey, so we're all right. But anyways, I think we should we should wrap up for today, Alan, um, with the knowledge that I genuinely, genuinely think this is one of King's best pieces of writing. Oh, absolutely. Not one of my favourites. I'd like oh, no, to once again think, make that disparity. I think, yeah, I think from the outset you have to make the, the distinction between best and favourite yeah. I don't ever want to read it again no but I'm glad I have in a really twisted <laughs> <laughs> no yeah. apart yeah. from that one scene if somebody you know 
And I'll be honest, that scene shocked me. When I came across that scene in the audiobook, I was genuinely shocked. Like, what the hell is going on? What, 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 what the... Because a lot of the time, King glosses over the explicitness. Mm. You know? Not then. Yeah. Not then. Mm. Right, anyways, Alan. Um, if our listener would like to get... Oh, no, let's not finish. I have news, Alan. You have news? I have news. We have had a question sent to us. Oh. An actual real-life question. So I want to put this to you, Alan, if that's all right. Absolutely fine. See if we can we'd spend five minutes on this. Are there any other characters in King's books that are the same as John Coffey? Um, on, through which forum was this question sent to us? This was sent to me on social media. Alright, cool. So, um, um, so his magicalness. Right, I, yeah, I was going to say, because um, some coffee can be viewed through several lenses, mm. uh, as we discussed, yeah, discussed off tape. Yes, um, and as we've discussed in relation to a character called the Magical Negro. Yeah, I mean, you've written about that, so maybe you'll take that angle. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Um, You're welcome! You just want me to say the evil words, don't you? That are really, really politically incorrect. Anyways, there's, when, when King was writing around about the time of the Green Mile, the uh -huh. phrase, the magical negro, was coined for John Coffey and then used retrospectively across other characters. And what the magical negro does in King's fiction, and fictions, not just King, is they're there specifically and ultimately to enable a white person to achieve something. And then, generally speaking, the black person is sacrificed to do so. So, Mother Abigail in the stand, her act, you know, when you get right down to the core of it, she is there so that Stu Redman, a white man, can go to Las Vegas to kill Randall Flagg. Yeah? Yeah. And John Coffey... He, you know, the, the phrase was coined for John Coffey and his ability to enable white people to be heroes. Go John Coffey. And, yes, yeah, so I'm not sure whether that is the magicalness that the, that the person is referring to or whether it's his ability as a healer or his Christ-like qualities. Because all three hmm. of those would work, wouldn't they? They would. And we've was. got an explicit JC, John Coffey, Jesus Christ, who mm. tries to resurrect the two girls at the beginning of the novel. Yes. And fails. Uh, but he's also able to take in what is effectively a darkness, isn't he? Yeah, and then expel it. And then expel it, yeah. But I, I don't know, as I said, I think, I mean, could you apply it? On that basis, is, is red from um, from Shawshank Redemption, a magical Negro yes. in that sense. Yes. Because he facilitates Andy Dufresne's escape. I yes. mean, it's not as as overtly magical as a John Coffey or a Mother Abigail no. is, um, but he is still the man who gets things and therefore yeah. 
facilitates Dufresne's escape. Although, actually, I mean, is it just because we picture it read as Morgan Freeman, or is he actually explicitly coded? No, he's not. He's an Irishman in the in the story in the novella in Rita Shawshank and the Shawshank Redemption. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. He's an Irishman. That's why he's called Red. So I think uh, okay, so in, in the same way that like J.P. McMurphy yeah. and Longfellow over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of thing. Yeah. But because Shawshank Redemption is such a, a well-known film, I think yeah. there is an argument to be made that Morgan Freeman as Red can be read yeah. as a magical Negro because you know he facilitates um, Andy Dufresne's survival in the sh in the prison, mm. doesn't he? If it wasn't for if it wasn't for him, I don't think Dufresne would have survived. Particularly, no. he facilitates his. Uh, growth within the prison system. Yeah, and his escape. And his escape. Through the rock camera. Yeah. And so Red's Red's role within in, in the film of the Shawshank Redemption is, well, and in the novel, it's just in the film he, he becomes a magical Negro. That, that is what he's, he's there to facilitate Andy Dufresne's abilities, isn't he? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think well, you're right. In, in that way, I mean, in the, you know, he doesn't die. I mean, nope. he nearly hangs himself in his halfway house, but uh, he, he he's allowed to live. He ref or he refuses the. I think that's it. He refuses to give in and die. I think that's the difference, isn't it? It's not that he thrives; he survives. Uh huh. But I think he still is almost a sacrificial victim. He has to play out his prison sentence. Yes, he's he's had to, he has to be granted parole. Yeah. Where Andy is allowed the chance to escape. Yeah, and like I say, it, it's red. So his, that so his that. escape is dependent on white yeah. people yeah. in the administration. Yeah, sadly, but yeah. So I'm not sure whether the question refers to that or whether it refers to the ability to heal mm. in a Christ-like fashion. Can you think of any characters who do that? Apart from John Coffey? I mean, there's the there's the healer in uh, Revival, isn't there? Mm. But again, I mean... I think that's I, not I, quite the same, though, is it? Because he's using electricity to facilitate the healing. Yeah, there's sort of a Frankensteinian... Yeah. An overtly Frankensteinian thing to that. Um, no, the problem is that I... The, you can talk about any sort of quasi-healing figures in King's uh, bibliography, whether they be like, you know, any sort of medical figures in mm -hmm. his bibliography. Not that I can name one off the top of my head. Let's have medical figures in King's bibliography. Let me just think about Annie Wilkes. Well, yes, all right. <clears throat> um, I'll say that quietly because, you know, she's not... She might listen, and I should be writing. Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> um, no, um, I'm looking and I'm thinking, thinking. But sort of like, what about, I mean, in terms of magicalness, what about like Johnny Smith? In the dead zone? Yeah. Yeah? What, no, but what I mean is, even if you look at, say, Johnny Smith in, in relation to, or in comparative to John Coffey. John Coffey for me is a figure who cannot escape the fact that he is a seven foot black man. 
So I, I think that you cannot, I cannot, in this context, compare some, you, you can't compare any of um, King's quasi-healing or supernatural white figures to John Coffey, because no. I don't think they are politically or culturally or narratively framed in the same way. No. No. So I think for that, ba on that basis, I think um, Mother Abigail is the only one mm. that could stand a comparison of any kind. I don't know if you agree. No, I agree. I can't particularly think of anybody else who functions in the same way. And I think if you're thinking, if, if the magicalness is a messianic, ma ma is yeah, that the right messianic, term? Yeah, messianic, yeah role then I think she functions she's she's the main doubling there too isn't she she's a messianic figure there isn't she she's gods mm. she's gods uh, you're talking gods vessels here vessels, aren't you? yeah so where we've got JC it's very explicitly JC for Jesus Christ in the green mile mm. Abigail Fremantle I think is the is the a similar just about all always round and she does seem to have some sort of supernatural abilities doesn't she all right so the only other one particularly if you if you're looking at the man in black or, or randall flag mm -hmm. as the sort of antithesis of that mm -hmm. could you therefore suggest that uh the gunslinger roland the gunslinger is a messianic figure in that way mm -hmm. but again i wouldn't want to compare him to john no. coffee I don't think he is messianic. I think he's more of a wandering Jew figure. Yeah. And I use that phrase as it is used in critical discourse rather than as a negative depiction of Jewish people. I just like sure. to make... Because, you know, that's, that's very prominent in the world nowadays, isn't it? Anti-Semitism. Not being anti-Semitic, that is a, a term that's used within academic discourse to describe somebody who walks, wanders around, um, not lost, but looking, you know? Mm. And actually, as I said, I keep I'm suggesting that you may be able to sort of maybe suggest that Johnny Smith occupies that role, but it's not it's not healing in the same no. way. It's it's more a sort of... It's a know, precognition maybe. for Johnny Smith, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it doesn't manifest in the same way. I think, no, I think... Mother Abigail aside, I think John Coffey is a unique figure. I think mm. you can sort of gesture towards things, but, you know, because of his, his prominence, both sort of physically and, and the way he domineers over, over the Green Mile as a text, yeah. um, you can't replicate that no. without people going, well, that's just John Coffey again. Exactly. So he has to sort of stand alone. Mm. There we go. Figuratively, literally, and... Any other kind of ways that you could name? So yeah, that uh, was a genuine question from another human being for us, Alan. What do you think of that? We, we have broke new ground. We've done on it. Made it. Somebody asked us. Traumatized ourselves and got questions. So there we go. From the audience. Anyway, questions from the floor, please. I think that's and a good opportunity. Please do not write. Sorry. Go on. And please do not uh, typecast us as racist because please don't. We, no, it's fine. Black uh, lives matter. We, like my lives indeed do matter. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so, anyways, Alan, I think this is a great opportunity to give out our social media and um, uh, we can have more questions from the com form. yeah communicative details. So, our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash Pennywise Dreadful. Our Twitter account is at Pennywise Dread, and um, you can email us on Pennywise Dreadful at gmail.com. With Indeed. any questions, comments, you can absolutely disagree with what we've been saying today. Or, or any other day. Or any other day, yeah. So, yeah, brilliant. Next time, Alan, we're going to talk about the sun dog. About photographs of dogs, yeah. About photographs of dogs, which is going to be highly exciting. They're, they're not uh, your usual summer holiday snaps. And we're going to come back to a character we vaguely um, recognise in the figure of Pop Merrill. Yes, indeed. So, that'll be good. Yes. And it won't be quite as traumatising as today's episode. No, I don't think so. Because I know I need will, to... I, will anything be as traumatising as today's episode ever again? No, it will not, because I think that genuinely <coughs> is the most traumatising story I have ever read. That scene is just... Uh, the fact that we've had to provide a compound content warning suggests that this is probably the most um, traumatising we'll ever get. Yeah. So anyways, Alan, that's it. That's me for today. I'm going to go lie down with a damp copy of the Radio Times on my head to calm down from this trauma. If that's all right with you. And I will see you uh, soon. By all means.